Hey, this is Ken M. Padawan J. Coach Duffy. From the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. Every week, the ODPH is talking sports, movies, TV, comics, and more. It's always a parlay of topics on each episode. You can find the ODPH on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and wherever you find great podcasts, such as the one you're listening to right now. Don't forget to check out OchoDuroParlayHour.com, where you can find the links to all of the ODPH social media accounts, links to the bands whose music you hear each week on the show, hashtag 607 podcast info, and parlay points, our companion block section of the show. Thanks for listening to the ODPH. Now get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome to Talkin' Shiz. I am CJ. And I am Maddox. And our podcast is like a radio show. We have no certain topics. We talk about anything and everything. And our opinions don't matter. And we do have a pod page. What is our pod page where folks can find our platforms and what we're all about? Maddox? I'm glad you asked. As a matter of fact, that is podpage.com forward slash talking without a G uh, dash shiz. And that's where our it's our one-stop shop. It has everything there. It has all of our donation links. It has all of the content that we have created, our recent related reviews. And it even gives you where you can find us on different applications such as Google, uh, iHeartRadio, you name it. We're in almost in every single uh, branch of applications out there so please check it out there's even if you want to become an official shizzler we even have merchandise so definitely go there check it out and yeah it's literally the best one-stop shop absolutely and sharing is caring so make sure you guys share 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 we're on twitter and that's talking underscore shiz instagram talking underscore shiz we have facebook we got our pod page we have different platforms apple music spotify what maddox that we are everywhere so definitely check us out and we definitely appreciate you guys listening yes thank you guys and we'll see you on one of our episodes saw it on linden street the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films exploitation oddities beloved classics and all points in between i'm your host chris roberts inviting you to join us here at the linden street cinema experience theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past if you're new to the show thank you so much for joining us this isn't your standard film review Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps I'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. Now, if you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Today, we are continuing our month-long theme of Not For Kids. That's our selection of some interesting animated films that are decidedly for more mature viewers. This week, we get things going with Clive A. Smith's animated cult classic, 1983's Rock and Rule. Join us. Thank you. 
It's 1990. I'm at a sleepover with friends, and I'm eight years old. It's standard fare. There's video games, pizza, running around an indoor playground with a large rodent mascot. And, you know, all the excitement is starting to wind down, as it has to. You know, a rented film has been put on to placate the kids, keep them semi-quiet, and give mom and dad a chance just to get away from the yelling. The tape goes in, and I see a familiar logo. A blue and white polar bear, looking up at a half ring of stars. It's an image that I have seen thousands of times before at that point when watching cartoons on TV at home. The movie. It's weird. It's animals playing rock and roll in the future, and I'm, I'm actually digging it. And yet, I've eaten too much pizza. I've ran around a giant playland, and I've blown a bunch of quarters at the arcade, and now I'm just tucked into my Transformers sleeping bag in a dark living room. My eyes get heavy, I blink, and suddenly it's morning. The movie's long over, but, you know, there's the requisite pancakes and pillow fights to attend to, and after that, everyone just goes home. The film stays just as it was, a half-remembered haze in my subconscious. And it just gets lost with the eddies of time. Now, smash cut 15 years into the future. It's 2005, and my brother has returned home from Marine Boot Camp, and we're all going to get together at my parents over the weekend, and, you know, I'm going to come home and visit. And, you know, we decide the logical, sensible thing to do is first go see Star Wars Revenge of the Sith at the local movie theater. And then after that, I'm going to swing by the local Best Buy because I have zero cents and just a small amount of money at this point in my life. And I wish I could say things have changed. And as I make my way through their DVD section, I see a large end cap display for a recently released film, giant poster touting first time on DVD. Rock and roll. A Proustian thunderbolt of recall strikes me, cutting through the smell of floor wax and scream chords of Nickelback playing over the store sound system. I'm eight years old again. I'm on my sleeping bag. I see these characters singing in front of me. This is the film I couldn't remember. This is what I did not finish viewing all of those years prior. I buy it immediately, much to my brother's bemusement, and we go back to my childhood home, and we steal, er, we grab a jug of Carlo Rossi wine from the back fridge, and we commence to get a good sweet wine buzz on while watching an animated feature from 1983. And in one of his more astute summations of a film, my brother turns to me and doesn't mince words. They showed this to kids? Yeah. Yeah, they did. But, if you want to get to that point, we need to start from the start. And go into the weeds and discuss the history of the studio that actually produced this work. Talk about the company that I have seen so many times before, with its sky-gazing polar bear logo. So let's do it. Join me, won't you? Let's talk about Nelvana.
Nelvana was founded in 1971 by Michael Hirsch, Patrick Lubert, and Clive Smith. Hirsch and Lubert were themselves independent filmmakers, both coming out of York University in Toronto, where they had an interest in animation. They'd each noted there was not really an animation industry to speak of in Canada, and they decided they would be the ones to fill that gap. And so they together founded their first partnership through a company called Laugh Arts. They later hooked up with Clive Smith, a British expat who had gotten his start working on the ABC Beatles animated series and the subsequent psychedelic 1968 film Yellow Submarine. And the three of them went on to manage to acquire a number of rights to Canadian comics from the 1940s. Thus, they ended up creating a documentary for the CBC entitled Comic Art Traditions in Canada, 1941 through 1954, which allowed them to then tour their work, get a lot of recognition in the process, and contribute to a accompanying book on Canadian comics. Flush now with this minor success, the three of them created Nelvana Limited, named after a World War II superheroine, Nelvana of the Northern Lights. She was an Inuit superhero, the daughter of the god Koliak the Mighty, king of the Northern Lights, and a simple mortal indigenous woman. Nelvana can fly, she has heat vision, she uses telepathy, she has powers of invisibility, she fights Nazis, oh, and she made her debut before Wonder Woman ever hit the stands. So take that, DC, you bunch of Johnny-come-latelys. Now, the company began to rack up a steady stream of work, contributing animated segments for the CBC and working on a number of short subject documentaries and cartoons. They created live-action series with animated shorts as children's programming, which was called Small Star Cinema, and that ran for 10 episodes from 1974 through 1975, and as a show, it was rather well-received. From there, they were given their first full television special, making its debut in December of 1975, which was entitled The Christmas Two-Step, a story about a girl who wanted to dance lead in a local Christmas pageant. A string of specials and projects would follow, including A Cosmic Christmas in 1977, it's about three aliens who visit Earth, they look like the Magi, they get to learn in air quotes the true meaning of Christmas, you know, that sort of thing. Fuzzy, feel good, keeps people happy during the holidays. 1978 saw them release The Devil and Daniel Mouse, which was an animated update of Stephen Bennett's The Devil and Daniel Webster. But this version has John Sebastian of The Loving Spoonful providing both music and voice work for characters. Now in this version, you have a good-hearted mouse named Daniel, and he's forced to try to save his love and musical partner Jan from a contract she signed with Satan to become a rock star. And it of course had a tie-in album with music from Sebastian and a children's book included to boot. And truly, it proved to be quite successful for the little upstart company. And of course, infamously, Nelvana was behind the 1978 Star Wars Holiday Special. <clears throat> at, at least the animated part of it. George Lucas had seen Nelvana's animation work, and he liked it, and so they provided the 10-minute animated segment of that special that we all know and love. It's called The Faithful Wookiee. Now look, before you get your knickers in a twist and start screaming, yeah, I, I know it's fucking awful. 
Harvey Corman should never have been an Imperial officer. We collectively didn't need to see B. Arthur being a trampy cantina waitress who literally smokes off of a very poorly done alien's head. I didn't need to have it hinted at me that Chewbacca's father, Atachuk, aka Itchy, was watching softcore pornography on his Viewmaster, nor did I ever recall requesting Carrie Fisher singing. But. Giant, giant but. The special gave us Boba Fett. And for my money, that has made it all worthwhile, and it absolves the special of its sins against the Star Wars canon. I have two droids. We've come in search of a ship that crashed near here. Maybe I can help you. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Are the Imperial troops near this planet? They are here, friend. And growing more powerful. How far away? Settle down. <coughs> all they do is eat. This is all we have, but uh, he's welcome to it. You are foolish to waste your kindness on this dumb creature. No lower life form is worth going hungry for, friend. I take it you have no love of the Empire. I don't. Well, neither do I. It will be easy to find the ship you seek. Follow me, friend. Don't you think it might be imprudent to trust him so quickly, sir? He's our only chance. And besides, he seems like a friend. Indeed. Friend is merely a term that is often misused. Did R2 say that? Words to that effect. Suffice to say, Nelvana was making its way up in the world, garnering praise, and starting to have enough juice to begin to actually really contemplate an attempt to make a full-length animated feature of their own. Now, as luck would have it, right around this time, producer Ivan Reitman and Leonard Mogul approached them and wanted Nelvana to get on board and animate translated stories from the heavy metal comic magazine into an anthology film that would be adult-oriented sci-fi, fantasy, and horror stories simply collected and called Heavy Metal. Nelvana passed on the movie, and the animation work for that film subsequently got farmed out to multiple studios, and it went on to be financially successful and a well-regarded cult film with an amazing musical album behind it, and it's going to be a future episode for sure, and it, it's worthy in its own right on so many levels. But, by turning down heavy metal, Nelvana instead opted to go back and further flesh out one of its previous properties, The Devil and Daniel Mouse, and make that concept their first full-length feature. The project was started in 1979, without really a well-defined script or even a fully fleshed out story. The company threw all of its resources into working on that project. Clive Smith would be on board to direct and it would become a feat that ended up taking five years in the making, 300 animators, and cost the fledgling company $8 million. 
Rotoscoping techniques would be utilized for certain sections as well as some practical effects, matte paintings, and creative workarounds to get the intended right look for the film. But I'm going to stop myself and table that for later. So techniques aside, they at least knew they were making history because it would be the first Canadian animated film that was produced solely in English. Previously, Canadian animated features had been done in Quebecese French. But what's that old saying? You measure twice, but you cut once? Not so much here. You see, over time, the project began to morph away from being the initial children's film that they had expected it to be. The original film was going to be entitled Drats, and it was going to be about a futuristic rock band, uh, rats that were, you know, playing in a future where humanity had died off and rats just kind of became the inheritors of the earth. Well, as progress was being made, the concept got darker, more adult, and let's be frank, weird. Animators were very much aware that they had been courted by Reitman for heavy metal, and they believed their project had some real legs. What's more, they were also aging spirits out of the 60s, and they felt a real kinship with those who had come before them, those anti-establishment artists, guys like Bakshi. But in this case, the animators at Nelvana felt they could draw rings around him. Flushed with that confidence and dedicated to a change, they would make this project into something different. They're going to tweak the tone of the story, and thus they're going to create art that could be enjoyed by mature audiences. Now, instead of a story solely centered on rats, the tale was going to be focused on post-apocalyptic Earth, where mankind had destroyed itself through nuclear annihilation, leaving dogs, cats, and rats in this world to mutate, becoming walking, talking, technologically advanced beings, ones who drink, swear, and have sex, all for us to take in. Yeah, I, I know. So now you have a story about a band in this unique dystopia being torn apart by an obsessive rock musician who's looking for the perfect voice to summon a trans-dimensional demon into this reality to allow him to destroy it and remake the world as he sees fit. You know, that old chestnut. And so the band is going to be led by the foul-mouthed, dog-nosed Omar, who, for the Canadian version of the film, would be voiced by Greg Salata. But due to several edits based on uh, certain levels of perceived profanity, as well as wanting bigger name recognition, the U.S. release put out by MGM and United Artists ended up redubbing the character with Paul Lee Matt, now voicing a far less crude Omar. For both versions, though, it would be Robin Zander of the band Cheap Trick who would provide Omar's singing voice. Co-band leader and Omar's girlfriend, also the most human-looking character in the joint and the object of our villain's desires, Angel was voiced by Susan Roman uh, of Sailor Jupiter, of you know all of you Sailor Moon fans out there. And her singing voice was provided by Debbie Harry of Blondie fame. For our villain, Mock Swagger. He's a gross caricature with a mostly human features. I mean, sporting at least a set of fangs and a really strange nose. He's a real amalgam of rock stars. 
Name-wise, and at some points with his body language, he's clearly meant to evoke frontman of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger. But some of the facial features and the delivery of his lines and the voice acting has a real David Bowie vibe to it. And he's voiced by the late, great Canadian actor and singer Don Franks. Oddly enough, though, they didn't have Franks sing. Opting to have Mock's singing voice be farmed out to two artists. Lou Reed would sing two songs, and then, later, Iggy Pop would, you know, take anchor and finish up the film. Unsettling to look at on multiple levels, no matter what. Rounding out the main cast, you had Dan Hennessy, Catherine Gallant, Greg Duffel, Brent Titcomb, Maurice LaMarche, and Catherine O'Hara, all providing other voices. With musical talent being asked to perform, it's not a surprise that the film features music from the likes of Debbie Harry, Cheap Trick, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Earth, Wind, and Fire. The latter honestly provides the best song of the film, which is not shocking at all to people with good musical taste. What is shocking, however, is it doesn't even fit in with anything else about the production. But, hey... Listen, you've heard me wax on about animation, I guess, long enough. We got the players. We understand what we're looking at. So how about we just get to that trailer, at least for the American release? What do you say? extended credit sequence plays out against a background of roiling clouds, lightning, and we get to see all of the rock talent that is going to be involved with this film, we are introduced to this very interesting future by a very serious voiceover that, well, here, it's better I just let you see it for yourself. Another time, another place. Legendary super rocker has retired to hometown, a remote, storm-ravaged village, famous for its unique power plant. It is here that he lays his plans for his comeback, a great and final performance that will secure his immortality. High in the hills above hometown, Mach's computers work at deciphering an ancient satanic code, which could unlock a doorway between his world and a darker dimension. While Mock himself 
searches for the last crucial component. A very special voice. We get to see the shadowy silhouette and square, strange eyes of one mock swagger, as voiced by Franks, who is traveling around from club to club, searching for a unique voice that will be used as a key for his larger plans. Weary from traveling the world and looking for said voice, Mock ends up stopping off in desperation at a small club in Ometown, a small little burg only noted for the fact that it houses a massive power plant. It's at that local club that a young upstart band is playing, with band co-leader Omar, as portrayed by Lamatt, trying to ignore the wishes of his girlfriend and co-leader Angel, as voiced by Roman, to play one of her songs after they open the show with his. Drummer Stretch, as played by Greg Duffel, and bass player Dizzy, as portrayed by Dan Hennessy, try in vain to mediate, but Omar launches into Born to Raise Hell, which is a rocking good time, but the club manager Mylar, as voiced by Martin Lavote, is not digging it, and he pulls the power on them halfway through. Not wanting to deal with the angry band and realizing that there isn't exactly a large crowd here, the manager ends up acquiescing, and for their next song, Angel begins to sing, getting a real reaction from the few people in attendance and catching the interest of one mock. Omar, who's been brooding, leaves angry that his song was not as popular as Angel's, and the two end up having a tense conversation about it in the alley outside of the club. Look it, why don't you just leave me alone? You've already screwed things up enough for one night. I trusted you, you jerk! Yeah, yeah, you were good tonight! You were good! So why'd you walk? Sometimes I walk, sometimes I talk. I'm talking now. Hey, you know, everything got a little weird. Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know, Angel. I guess I just want it all. Now. I want everything too, Omar. Takes time. The two of them end up making up and then um, adjourning to an abandoned car on the outskirts of town at a lover's lane to uh, continue making up some more. They're interrupted by the brutish Toad Schlepper, as portrayed by Chris Wiggins, one of Mock's top men, who invites Angel, and subsequently the rest of the band, to join Mock at his mansion and to talk about their latest performance. Omar is not impressed nor happy about it, but Angel convinces him this could be a really big opportunity. So the entire band travels to Mock's mansion, where they get to meet the singer himself, as well as his three goons, the Schlepper brothers. The already seen Toad, his middle brother Sleazy, as voiced by Brent Titcombe, and the childlike and friendly Zip, as voiced by Greg Duffel, all whom are vaguely dog-life, and who glide about on roller skates. Mock wishes to speak to Angel alone, and so he has the brothers incapacitate Omar, Dizzy, and Stretch with glowing Edison balls, which 
gets the boys incredibly high and entrances them. Mock then makes Angel an offer to perform with him as a solo act, promising to make it worth her while, but of course she would have to ditch her bandmates. Angel, to her credit, turns him down. Unwilling to let Angel actually say no, Mock ends up abducting her and taking her with him to a concert he's performing in Nuke, York. No, you, you heard me right. And then they put the still drugged out boys into their car, where it is sent careening down the hillside away from Mock's mansion. Dizzy comes to and is able to sort of steer clear of any outright danger, but the car does wreck at the bottom of the hill and gets totaled. Needing to get to Angel, the boys end up stealing a cop car and attempt to give the airship that Mock is leaving in chase, but they end up being stopped and arrested at the border. Angel does manage to break free from the room she's been locked in after befriending a very large air quote, little sister of the Schleppers, Cindy, who wants to go out and dance. Together, they use the ductwork of the airship to make their escape to the streets of New York below. And along the way, Angel manages to overhear Mock running projections and talking with his computer, realizing his plans are far more sinister than she first thought. I found the voice. I've got is trying to summon a trans-dimensional demon, like you do. Now, the band members end up getting bailed out of jail by Dizzy's aunt, 
Edith, as portrayed by Catherine O'Hara, who gives them the dirt on the schleppers and tells them all about the club that they like to hang out in, Club 666. Meanwhile, the girls do sneak out and manage to make it to the nightclub, but they're quickly intercepted by Cindy's brothers and are forced to return back to Mock. The band catches a glimpse of Angel as she's leaving, and Omar gives chase, only to run into Mock himself, who is happy to show him that Angel now loves him and is exceedingly happy to be done with the band. Horrified and heartbroken, Omar runs off to the night. And then Mock thanks the imposter he hired to play Angel and resumes his plans on summoning the demon. Still, though, needing to motivate Angel to work for him and sing those notes, Mock sets up an elaborate speech to give to her, laying out how he's going to be completely willing to give her everything, but, you know, since she denied him, now he needs to really make her see that her refusal has consequences. When she refuses yet again, Mock ends up showing Angel that he is holding her bandmates in a containment field, torturing them for fun and laughing at their screams. If Angel will not do as he wishes, he will outright kill the band in front of her. Broken and with no choice, Angel agrees to sing for him. The boys are released and dumped back on a bus out of town, not in their right frame of mind, rendered rather simplistic, happy fools. That night, Angel is forced to appear at Carnegie Hall, and while on stage with Mock, as the concert ramps up and she starts to sing the notes, Mock's machinery to summon the beast blows out all of its fuses, ruining his plans. Also, this causes him much public embarrassment. Checking with his computer, Mock realizes he's going to have to return to Ometown and utilize the power plant's unlimited power there. Celebrating what he feels will now be his near triumph with copious amounts of drugs, Mock ends up breaking into song in Lou Reed's voice, blasting, My name is Mock. During that trip via the airship, Angel tries to convince Mock not to go through with this, but he just has her drugged and locked away. Zip, the youngest and most simple of the Schlepper brothers, sweetly questions that he feels what they're doing might actually be evil. Hey, boss, um, can, can, can you tell the difference between good and evil? Zip, try to realize there is no longer black or white, good or evil. We've evolved beyond uh, that. But Uncle Mikey says we should we know the difference. We all must have our own personal view of right and wrong but 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 is what we are doing evil of course not remembers if evil spelled backwards is live and we all want to do that yeah 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 but 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 uncle mikey says that uh so until next week boys and girls goodbye and be good goodbye uncle mikey zip 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 no Santa Claus, no Tooth Fairy, and no Uncle Mikey. The concert begins as planned, even with Angel refusing to sing. She's drugged and wired to the concert circuitry by the Schlepper brothers, which painfully forces her to sing notes. The boys in the band have been attempting to sing upbeat music in their silly haze, but Mock's control over them breaks when he fires up the power plant and ends up sending a reverberating charge of energy throughout the city at the concert. 
This breaks the spell, and they suddenly find themselves arguing as to what exactly they should do, with Dizzy and Stretch wanting to rescue Angel, knowing she's being held hostage still, and Omar convinced that Angel is with Mock willingly. The former steal a cop car and crash the concert, only to find they've gotten there too late. Angel's voice has successfully opened the dimension as a key, and a giant pentagram in lasers begins to glow red on the floor of the hall, shimmering and sparkling as a doorway opens, and through it steps a horrific three-story-tall demon that starts to damage the building and eat audience members. Mock ends up cackling in delight as the beast turns its attention to the now-shackled angel. Omar, though, arrives, having decided to believe his friends, and frees Angel and swings his guitar as an axe toward the demon away. As the demon begins to advance on Omar, ready to strike, Zip, realizing this is not a good thing and that Mock is lying to him, rushes out to help the singer and ends up taking a fatal blow that was meant for Omar. Toad rushes to help his little brother, tearfully asking him why, to which a dying Zip begs him to tell him, we ain't evil, are we, before dying in his brother's arms. Toad looks up to see Mock laughing at all the death and destruction going on around him, and begins to see red. Angel announces that she will try to sing the demon back through the gates as fire spreads through the hall, and the demon begins to again focus its aim on her sending multiple tendrils towards her to envelop her. Music swelling, Omar begins to sing with her, adding a key element of harmony, and the band begins to belt out their song, Send Love Through. The demon begins to react violently and slowly retreats back through its portal, unable to stand the music sent its way. As Mock rages from his position above in the control center, Toad appears behind him and throws him down into the portal, payback for his brother. Mock manages to cling to the lip of the collapsing gateway before he suddenly realizes, far too late, the computer was telling him the truth. It's no one voice that can stop the beast, hence why Harmony is now winning. He falls screaming into the void, and the portal closes, locking Mach away with his precious beast. Omar and Angel embrace on stage. The audience, not yet quite realizing what has occurred, assumes all of this was part of the show, and the band continues to play on, with Mylar, the rock manager, celebrating that they are indeed a new hit sensation, and he pumps up the crowd and the show becomes a rousing success. Credits roll. So where do we even begin? Well, how about this? Let's start with what works. The film does look beautiful. The animation is fantastic. It's a mix of rotoscoping techniques, Mac techniques, interesting workarounds that justifiably make it look incredible. And I mean, you gotta put it in perspective, this was done before, you know, computer animation was widely available, so a lot of what you're seeing here could have been solved probably in like two seconds by modern standards, and that makes it impressive. And 
I know I'm heaping this praise on it, but, you know, from a practical standpoint, it should look incredible. This is a film that had so many resources and hands on deck making it into a reality. The fact that it has high quality images and it was using the best technology of the day that they could afford is actually to be expected. So here, case in point. Uh, to give the demon that weird ethereal glow, but wanting to give it a texture, you know, that look to make it look both alien yet seeming organic at the same time, the animators didn't really know what to do, so they ended up going out and they bought cow brains from a local grocer. They brought those in to the studio and they painted the brains various shades of orange, red, and yellow to blot out all the grayness. And what they would do is they would backlight it and then film it under different pulsing light techniques, giving it sort of a heartbeat quality. That footage would then be layered in between the animated cells on the drawn demon, and now what do you get? A strange, grotesque monster that seems to have all of this bizarre, glowing, kind of moving and writhing parts, you know, going on independently, even as it remains part of the whole demon. It's actually rather simple. It's effective, and it really looks incredible when you see it on the screen. What's more, you have the music. Now, I have to say, I'm admittedly not the biggest cheap trick fan in the world, but they're nothing to sneeze at. Uh, hey, for my money, the drummer Bunny Carlos always impressed me with his ability to simultaneously smoke while pounding away at the skins, and what made that so impressive is he never seemed to really lose the ash off the end of his cigarette unless he wanted to. But I digress, that's smoking technique. You got some great Debbie Harry of Blondie vocals here, you got warbling Lou Reed, terse Iggy Pop, and in spite of the fact that it only plays over the credits, like almost every other song they have, Dance 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 by Earth, Wind & Fire decidedly, as the kids these days say, slaps. This is a fun soundtrack, and it's worth chasing it down and giving a listen to, just for its own merits, especially if you're a lover of rock of the late 70s and early 80s. And all that said, let's talk about some of the problems. This film needed polishing and editing in a big way. And a lot of the reason it feels so disjointed and confusing is because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, they started drawing it before they fully knew what the story was going to be. And even though they had kind of a germ of an idea, and they could synthesize that idea from their Devil and Daniel Mouse program, the tone shifting from making it a kid's film to a film aimed at older teens and adults and then attempting to soften it at the very end, it didn't do them any favors. You have this thing that's neither fish nor fowl, a hodgepodge if you will. For example, Mock's motivations don't really make sense and they're never explicitly fleshed out. So if I'm understanding this right, He's such a temperamental artist and genius that when he has a show that doesn't sell out, his first line of thinking is he needs to destroy the world to make them understand his greatness, and he's going to do that by utilizing a demonic force. Okay, who is going to be left to appreciate him if that happens, and what's the endgame look like there? You know, if they had just taken a beat and said, you know, maybe a simpler goal of world domination and you want to use the demon to control it, that would make a little more sense. Especially when you're telling a story that's already set in a post-apocalyptic world. You have a villain that suddenly wants to flush it all away just because there was a few empty seats in a concert hall? It seems, well, lame. Lazy writing. Intellectually limp. 
Now, most likely, it had been changed a few times, and they had a deadline, so it was most likely said, just shut up and keep animating, we're just going to do it this way. And I understand that, but it leaves the viewer going, this story seems a bit thin. My next problem, the band. You have a glaring problem with this band. They have no name. It's Omar, Angel, Dizzy, and Stretch. You spent all this time, all this money, five years, 300 animators, and you don't give the band that the main characters your story are in a name? How can a band expect to get fame and fortune and make a name for themselves if they have nothing to call themselves? Who are we ultimately rooting for? I can drive a truck through that plot hole, and again, it feels like something that could have been fixed had somebody just taken a beat and said, how about we do some editing on this script and read some notes? Now, the redubbing has been a point of contention between purists who think that Greg Salata should have been the sole speaking voice of Omar versus the American release having him portrayed by Paul Lamatt. But honestly, I've seen both versions, and while Salata's portrayal he's a little whiny he's more edgy he's rude the results are pretty much the same and the reason is the character is too simplistically fleshed out to blame either of the actors for not doing a good job in air quotes both are working with what they have here and they're trying to make the best of it and i commend both of them as much as the american version is accused of being watered down with some of its adult content um don't take this as gospel if i'm correct the Canadian cars at the Lover's Lane do a little more rocking than the Americans do in the American release, but it's the American version who once again get to pull ahead with the puritanical vein, because opting to remove a few of the more salacious references, they end up killing off the character of Zip at the end, whereas the Canadian version has Zip being injured, but he ends up waking up at the end and surviving his ordeal with the demon. That's pretty weird. I can hear you asking out there, get to it, man. Just tell us, how was this film received? Well, I know this is going to come as a shock, like so many things on this show. Not very well. The critics didn't get it. Now, the film was praised for its music, and it even got some, you know, lauded love for its animation. But characters themselves were a little unsettling to some reviewers. Take Janet Maslin of the New York Times. She was noting that the animation seems to have endowed the male characters with doggy looking like muzzles. Now, I gotta say, nothing you see on the screen is any stranger than would be the norm for a Disney film. And I'm looking at examples like DuckTales, for example. But I think the difference here is the context. If you tell folks you have a story that's set in a town of anthropomorphized animals where they sing and drive cars and talk about their lives, people are on board because you're telling them these are animals, this is a world full of animals. Done. Great. Move on. 
But if you say, hey, I got a story about a bunch of weird animal hybrids that are mutated from a post-apocalyptic crisis, kind of freaks out the squares a little bit from Jump Street, don't you think? Repeatedly, though, those who saw it would write about it as essentially setting it up to be a cult film, mentioning it was goofy fun, it was an interesting blend of sci-fi and music, and it's something that you shouldn't miss. Audiences, though, decidedly did not agree and did not get it upon its initial run in theaters. Released on August 12th of 1983, Rock and Roll was a complete and utter bomb. MGM United Artists tried to mitigate the damage with a limited release and then attempting to market it towards music fans and older teens, but the damage was already done. By the time it had closed, it had grossed little over $30,000 against its $8 million investment. If a company was ever set to be destroyed by its own hubris, Nelvana would have fit that bill to a T. But, miraculously, this was not the case. You see, Nelvana was saved by being at the right place at the right time and exploiting the explosion of corporate greed that came with the 1980s cartoon tie-in boom. You see, somewhere along the line, toy makers of the day made a direct correlation that they could create a cheap children's animated show. And right when the show was released, the you know animated special or series that they'd rolled out, they would already have toys aplenty waiting in stores, you know, get mom and dad to shut those demanding little tykes up. It was simultaneously what made Saturday mornings of the 1980s both magical and horrible at the same time. See, Mattel had initially wanted their Strawberry Shortcake character to have several specials made to support their toy line, and three were cranked out to meet the demand by Nelvana. Nelvana also entered into a partnership with the French-American animation company, Deke, to help create two new Saturday morning favorites, Inspector Gadget and the Get Along Gang, which equally proved to be some success. But the company would truly, truly prove to pull Nelvana up and be its savior was the American Greetings Company. Those titans of greeting cards in the world had come calling to see if they could have Nelvana translate characters they had created to great success in 1981, conceived by artist Elaine Kucherik, the Care Bears. American Greetings had originally gone to an Ottawa-based company to create their television specials starring the Care Bears, but this was a bigger and more well-known company that they had with Nelvana, who was now being tapped to bring the 1985 Care Bears the movie to the big screen. Made for just $2 million, it grossed $34 million at the box office, and Nelvana was poised to remain a major player in the television cartoon world, continuing with the next two major motion pictures in the Care Bear sequel universe, both in 86 and 87, and going on to create the Care Bears television series that ran from 85 to 88. Other properties followed, Mad Balls, My Pet Monster. Then, Nelvana had Lucasfilm come back calling in 85 to produce two separate Star Wars properties for the Saturday morning television block on ABC, Star Wars Ewoks and Star Wars Droids. Throw in animated contract for the cartoon version of Beetlejuice, and you are set to having profits roll in for the next six years straight. Now, 
I'm stopping this with Nelvana in the early 90s. I'm very happy to report they're still around, still going strong today, and still pumping out great content. But man, this is a film that is an example of a decent idea being muddied by a complete lack of planning. As for Rock and Rules Legacy itself, after its initial showing, it began to have unedited broadcasts on the Canadian television uh, in 1988. Unedited, of course. It was also released on video in 1984, and it did make a Laserdisc debut in 1986, but a lack of viewership basically made it not a recognizable property, so most of the copies went out of print and the film really went underground. It was heavily traded and sought after at comic book conventions, but it sort of just disappeared. So if you were not one of the lucky people, I guess I should count myself as one of them who got to see part of it on VHS, it didn't exist. Now, here's the thing. For those who did see it, though, it left an impression. If you go on to Rotten Tomatoes, while it's not really even able to get a ranking with the critics, the audience has it polling fresh at 72%. And while it has its problems and its creators let their ambitions get ahead of their resources when it was being made, in the attempt, there's a certain beauty that comes from operating like there's no boundaries. And when everything sounds like a good idea, and when you match it up with classically hand-drawn animation that looks so beautiful and couple it with an actually decent soundtrack for the day, sorry guys, I do have to admit the heavy metal soundtrack and film was better, you get something that is still rather amazing and actually does need to be experienced by people who claim to be either fans of animation, fans of classic rock, or, best of both worlds, fans of both. The version of Rock and Roll screened here at the LSCE was the 2005 two-disc collector's edition DVD put out by Unearthed Films, and it comes loaded for bear, with the American release being available, a making of documentary, commentary from Clive Smith, sketch galleries, the Canadian version of the film, the original Devil and Daniel Mouse special, a documentary on how the special was made, work prints for the title sequences and ending sequences, a collector's booklet of interviews from Anna with art and series trailers. I got all of this back in the day for $19.99. Five years later, the entire shebang was put out by Unearth Films again in November of 2010 for the same price on Blu-ray. And both the DVD and Blu-ray copies have since gone out of print. Now, you can still find them available from private sellers who are gouging like there is no tomorrow. As of this recording, Z Shops are reporting that the DVD will run you $430 a throw, while the Blu-ray can be yours for a scant $299. I say, bah! You can still purchase the film as a digital download from Amazon for $19.99, or if you have Amazon Prime, at least as of this recording, the film is available to stream free for Prime members. In the interest of letting people know, not that I would ever encourage this, both versions of the film are available free to stream at present on YouTube. So, you know, do what you want with that information. Now, remember folks, 
I gotta tell you this. We here at the LSCE don't get anything for telling you where to buy products. We do think that during these times, it's ever so important to keep supporting physical media so that these fine companies that own the rights to these films will keep releasing the content that we all know and love. And isn't that what you want at the end of the day? More content for you to screen? Besides, in this case, it's a strange and interesting piece of animation that never quite fit anywhere, which makes it all the more fascinating. And therefore, it's more compelling that you find a copy of it and see it for yourself. So what are you waiting for? Go out there, see Rock and Rule today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like us, we would ask that you please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcast, hit that subscribe button, or hey, please just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce we have recently been put on Amazon Music, so if you have an account there, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we are a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. More reviews and the increased likes affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable, and then we can share these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If writing isn't your bag, but you want to be even more personal or wish to contribute to a segment in the sidecar, please feel free, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. Street.